Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple and the host of the Project Purple podcast. We have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few updates here. I, I would say quick, but these aren't going to be quick here. Uh, I'm editing on the fly here as we go. We're already halfway through, more than halfway through. We're actually, as we record this, we're heading into August, which is just insane how fast this year has gone. But here's the great news for the audience listening and watching. We are on pace for another record year, which is just unbelievable. Last year was our best year ever. And already here we are, as I said, through seven months, and we are on pace to have another amazing year, which just means we get to help that many more people from our programs with patient aid, our food program and research. And I just wanna thank everyone who has supported, donated or participated in a Project Purple event till this point. Crazy, many of our fall marathon teams are full, we're sold out. So if you're looking to run with us uh, in any of our major marathons or world majors, you gotta get on a 2024 team. Um, Berlin is actually closed. Um, we did have some spots, but that is now closed as we record this. We do still have spots though in Twin Cities in uh, Minneapolis in the fall, our Detroit full half and 5K, which is a great race that we're bringing back. We also have a team in the Chicago half fall happening in September and our newly added Sono South Norwalk half marathon and 5K in Connecticut. So we've got a, a new team there that we still have spots available. Also, if you're running your own individual race and one that's not listed, you can always support Project Purple via our Pioneer program. We also have our virtual event series happening. Our Work Harder, It's Not Chemo is in August, as well as our Horner Hustle 5K for those that live in the Park Ridge, Illinois, just right, out of, right outside of Chicago, right near the airport. That's happening in August. As well as, which this is kind of exciting, we're gonna have our first ever Repel event, which is our over the edge event in Hartford, Connecticut, coming up on September 16th as we go over the edge for Project Purple and to raise awareness for pancreatic cancer. To learn more about all these great events, visit our website at projectpurple.org and make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on all things Project Purple. And we are everywhere on social media. We're even on TikTok now, which is fascinating. And I think we also just joined the new thread. So we're there as well. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest coming to us all the way from, I say the, the left coast, but the west coast but lives in Wyoming, but currently is in Portland, Oregon, pancreatic cancer survivor, Mary Billiter. Mary, welcome to the Project Purple podcast. Hello. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm in uh, Oregon. We had some car stuff going on the way home. So um, I'm here in beautiful, and I love Oregon, um, but we were supposed to be home. So you get me on the phone today. <laughs> Well, it's awesome. It's awesome to have you here. I know uh, our team's done a great job of lining up some great guests here on the podcast, and I'm excited to hear your story. I know we were just connecting uh, before we hit record here, just getting to know each other a little bit. I know a little bit about your story at a very high level, um, but I'm excited to hear it because it it's a it's a cool one. Um, and I always love, I think one thing that this podcast has really evolved, and I, I you know, we were talking a little bit about this, you know, over six and a half years now. Um, is just really being able to tell the survivor stories, um, you know, and, and that's something that I think is, it's so special for so many reasons, but I think what's, what's so cool for me 
is because I've always said, like, I get to meet the survivors at events or when I travel, as I was saying, been to a lot of parts in the country um, before we were recording here. But to be able to now bring that to the audience and to be able to amplify that is just really, really special. And when we get people from all over the world, um, as I mentioned, we had a guy from the UK, we've interviewed people from so many places and it's just really special. Um, so I'm really excited to have you here and, and to get started. Um, this is your turn to, I'm going to hand the mic over to you, as I said before, and uh, your opportunity to kind of share your journey with pancreatic cancer. And as I said, you can stay as high level as you want, or you can get in the weeds and I'll be taking notes and jumping in from time to time. But with that, Mary, the microphone is yours. Thanks, Dino. And, and I think what I love about this podcast is it also brings hope because Anytime you hear about pancreatic cancer, you hear about everybody who lost their battle, you know, and I think um, for me, it was really f important to focus on the survivors and those who made it through and um, not knowing I would be one of them. Um, so my stories, um, I don't think it's very unique, but at the same time, um, I think one of the reasons that pancreatic cancer is so hard to diagnose is because by the time you feel symptoms, it's usually the tumor or uh, the, the pancreatic cancer has spread. Um, and that's when you start to have the symptoms. I ate, <laughs> kind of embarrassed, I ate something really greasy and um, it was, uh, oh, it's so embarrassing. It was in November of uh, 2021 and I had like the greasiest hamburger you could have. And I, I say that because I'm pretty good about what I eat and I was just craving it. And, you know, I had it without a bun, but I, man, that, that I had it on a Friday night and I started to feel this sharp pain in my left um, shoulder blade, like just, and my mom grew up with a nurse. So my mom was a nurse and my dad was an investigative journalist. So I had one parent that said, you know, um, you, you know, you basically had to be unconscious or, you know, um, or, or not breathing to go to the ER. And my dad, you know, being an investigative journalist and a Pulitzer Prize winning one at that was always, you know, making us weary of hidden hospital costs. So, you know, I was raised with both of those. So it was kind of like, you really have to be on death's door to go to the emergency room. So I kept saying, oh, this will pass, this will pass. And I was dating my former husband. That's a whole nother podcast, but basically <laughs> COVID was not kind to us. And I called him and I said, by Sunday, the pain would not go away. And I mean, I was just in a, in a mess. And um, I told my, my son was 14. My youngest was 14 at the time. And one of my twins was um, 24 and they were both home. And I said, guys, I think I'm having a heart attack <laughs> <laughs> they were playing video games and they didn't stop. They're like, oh, you're fine. And I was like, oh, okay. But then I called Ron and I said, I think I'm having a heart attack because being raised by a nurse, I also know that heart attacks can show up. You can get pains in your chest that can radiate to the back. And so I was like, oh my gosh, my dad died really young of a heart attack. Maybe that's what's happening. And Ron was so calm. He's like, well, we won't know until we go to the ER. So it was a Sunday night long football day, ER was packed. I quietly went up to the intake nurse and said, I think I'm having a heart attack. And those magical doors behind her just quickly opened. They ushered me in. 
put all the EKG stuff on me, watched her spit out the tape. I looked for her reaction and she was really good about staying neutral. So I was like, hmm. But then when they took the electrodes off and asked me to follow her, I turned to Ron. I said, either they're asking me to walk off my heart attack or I'm not having one. Um, but the pain was so intense. Um, and they couldn't give me anything until they knew what they were treating. So they did a CT scan and they thought originally it was pancreatitis and I'd never had that. And uh, I'd only heard about it. When you say go into the weeds, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober since I was 18. I'm 55 now. I just celebrated 37 years of sobriety. The only time I'd ever heard of pancreatitis was from alcoholics who came in because of pancreatitis. Cause usually I've been told it's, it can be brought on by excessive drinking. So the first thing I told him was like, look, I'm sober. I, you can take hairs. I had at the time a lot of hair. And I said, I haven't touched a drug or alcohol in 36. That was 35 years. And, um, they gave me morphine and that barely touched the pain. And after that long of sobriety, usually drugs will kind of hit you hard. It barely touched the pain. So they kept me in the hospital for three days and released me to go. Now in Wyoming, we have great health care. However, we are a really rural state. So we don't have a lot of the same amenities that bigger cities have. So I went into um, Aurora, Colorado to Anschutz and they were going to put in a stint. They said, oh, we're just going to open up your pancreatic duct, put in a stint, come back in three weeks. And, and I was at the time, looking back, I was complaining, like, I can't believe I have to have this done. And then in three weeks, I have to have it taken out. Da, 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 da. Well, I went under and when I woke up, the doctor was there, I guess a surgeon. And he said, um, I said, did it go well? He said, we weren't able to put it in. And I said, why? And he said, we found a mass. And I said, do you think it's cancer? And he nodded. And I remember Ron and, and me both just crying. Like I had battled breast cancer in 2015 and had been victorious. And I just thought pancreatic cancer, like no. And, um, and then it just seems like a whirlwind, you know, everything happened so quickly. I got a port put in. I'd never had that with the breast cancer. I didn't have to have that. Thank God. Um, had the port put in and I started my first round of five FU chemo December 20th. So five days before Christmas. And I was supposed to be in Chicago with my oldest twin son and his fiance and spend the holiday with them. And they ended up coming to me and, you know, in Wyoming, it's so beautiful at Christmas time. You know, we get a lot of, we get about six months of winter, but at Christmas time, it's, it's as if mother nature herself knows it's just such a special day. And it's just, it literally, the, the snow looks like crystals. It's just gorgeous. And I'm laying on a couch and anybody who hasn't gone through, and I, I hope it's not a lot, but I know it's, that's an, uh, not a reality. Anybody who hasn't gone through 5-FU, it's 5, it's Florex. I can never pronounce it, Florexanol or something to that effect. And basically, it's the strand. But I was told by a chemo nurse, it, it stands for five different chemos they're putting in you. I don't know. I've looked it up. It's really hard to decide. I just know that you go in on a Monday and you don't, and you go home with a pack and you don't get it taken off till Wednesday. 
And that is, that is intense. Um, and, you know, Christmas, so I went in on the 20th and the 22nd, I had the port removed and, you know, Christmas that year just looked so differently than what we had imagined. And my kids were there. I have four children and my twins were there, Aston and Kyle, my daughter, Sierra, who uh, was in college at the time. And then my youngest son, Cooper, and they were all around me. And, you know, as a mom, I've always made Christmas dinner and Christmas Eve, we go to mass and we did go to mass, but I was, I could barely make it. And, um, so that started um, the chemo journey, and and I had two treatments in December and three in January. So I had five treatments of five FU. They gave me the whole month of February off, and then I went and had my Whipple. So I am. Um, I had I had to keep remembering that I was one of the lucky ones. Uh, my tumor was twenty millimeters. And then after five rounds of chemo, it went down to eight, which was insane. And so I remember when I was talking to Dr. Arndt, who was my surgical oncologist at, at Anschutz, when he first told me, I said, is there anything good? Because, you know, all they tell you are all the side effects and everything that could happen. And he's like, we never see a tumor this small. And then when it went from 20 to eight, I was like, okay, that's even better. Um so I, I am a single parent. And even though I was dating my former husband, you know, I, 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 my family's in California. It was, I, yet I never felt alone. I had Ron beside me the whole time. Community of Wyoming was great. Um, but that Whipple surgery is intense. It is intense. And um, he was there with my daughter who flew out. And she stayed with me for 10 days in the hospital and Ron stayed at home with Cooper. Um, so they removed the tumor and here's another miracle. It had not spread to the lymph nodes or the margins. And that that's unheard of, you know, when they got it, they got it all. Um, and I had to learn to walk again. Um, my daughter is a, a documentarian and her degree at Bozeman uh, MSU is in film. And so she did this, amazing documentary um, on the cancer journey. And it was so well done because it didn't go into the macabre. It didn't go into, uh, you know, this pity thing. It really, it was almost like perks of being a wallflower, but for cancer, she just did such a beautiful job. And, you know, she sees me walking in there and I didn't know she had video on a lot of times and, there was a moment where I had to get the, I had to have a feed bag put on because I wasn't keeping anything down and they put it, you know, it's horrible. Um, and I said, I just wish I could die. And then she said, she said, but what about me? And um, it was so selfish of me. The pain was so great um, that I, I just, I kept praying to God that I would die. And I'm really grateful he didn't hear my cry. You know, I'm really grateful. I'm Catholic. If you meet any Mary, they're going to be Catholic. <laughs> or, you know, usually an Italian family or I'm Irish, Irish Catholic. So, um, 
you know, I, if I have any regrets, it's that my daughter saw me at my worst and there's nothing worse. And I can't imagine hearing a parent say, I wish I was just dead. You know, that's not my best moment. And yet she captured it so well. And in her documentary, she said how selfish of me that I wanted her around when she was in so much pain. So, um, wow. So I got out in 10 days. Um, I, uh, cheated at the hospital and you know they'd say how much did you eat and i'd put some down the toilet because i just wanted <laughs> to get out <laughs> and um because i knew i would heal better at home and i did and cooper was at school i tried to keep he was a freshman i tried to keep his routine as in high school as sane as possible and Cece went back to college the air and color cc she went back to college and my twins went on with their life and it felt like mine was on pause like i just watched winter go by i watched spring go by um a month after the whipple i had more five fu and then i got colitis and so then um i had a really good local oncologist who switched me from 5-FU to Jimbraxine and mm-hmm. yeah. And another one begins with an A. I can't, uh, Jimbrax, it's something. And that's when I lost. Gems are in a Braxine. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And my former husband, Ron is bald and I love bald. I think <laughs> if you're in bald, you got to rock it. And I think one of the most romantic things he did, cause I had this kind of like comb over going Yeah, and it wasn't working. And he, I talked to him about it and he said, you know, when I had that, I just, I just took it off. And I said, would you do that? And so he shaved my head. I got to tell you, we'd been together so many years, decades. And when he shaved my head, it was the most romantic thing, you know, just because he was just so loving and just, you know, he's like, dang, you look good, bald. <laughs> <laughs> I kept me, everybody told me I had a good head, but you know, like, um, I have a five, four head. So, you know, um, <laughs> I was bald and then we switched the chemo and then my very last, we didn't know it was going to be my last treatment, but, um, it was in July and July 11th. And that night I, uh, Ron was, he had to, he was at a work function and I called him and I said, I'm having a really hard time breathing. So he took me in and what can happen with the chemo is it's called pneumonitis where it attacks your lungs mm-hmm. and I pneumonitis and pneumonia on July 11th. And I remember this because when I finally got admitted, they, well, it didn't take them long, but they put me into a room and it was turning midnight. And I said, July 12th, I said, I should, you know, be getting my 36 year sobriety chip. And so this male nurse, so nice. He got the lid of a, medicine bottle and he wrote 36 on it and gave me my chip so you know so but i went back to my local oncologist and said sorry let me see i can they're clearly doing some yard work outside that's all right (laughs) oh my goodness i'm in a hotel so this is fun i wish it was my um so anyway um i went to my local oncologist and said 
I, I don't think I can do anymore. And I had two, I had two uh, sessions left. And Dr. El Tarabelli is Egyptian and he does not mince words. And he, the entire time I worked with him locally, he would always be very statistical and very clinical. And he said, you did a good job. And I knew that was high praise from Dr. El Tarabelli. I was like, okay, I'm taking it. So um, he came and I rang the bell on July 29th. So just a year ago, I rang the bell and um, I got to dance with my son at his September wedding. I was pretty um, bald. Um, I mean, my hair came in this color, white and gray. Um, people love it. And I'm like, but you didn't see me before. And my youngest son said, mom, that's like telling people to F off when they're saying that. <laughs> so I've had to say, thank you. Cause I want to say like, this is what I look like normally, but it is, it's, it's this whole transformation, you know? And, um, again, I was one of the lucky ones. Like I, I just passed the year mark, right? Today's the 31st. And I can literally this whole year, I've been like, where was I at this time last year? And just, it's amazing when you look back and what the human spirit can endure. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And I didn't do it alone. And I definitely believe in God. And I know he was beside me. And so I, I try to, anytime I hear somebody going through something, I don't care if it's a hangnail, you know, it, if it's hurting them, it's, it's important, you know, but no, buts. pancreatic cancer though, I, it's like the top three cancers. And anytime you tell somebody that's what you're battling, you get an audible gasp because they're like, <gasps> you know, so I got diagnosed at 53. I turned uh, 54 and um, this year I turned 55. So I was, it was a year, you know, a little over a year battle. So yeah, it was tough. That's amazing. I mean, so yeah, now that you we go through the numbers here, like being diagnosed at 53 is young. I mean, you're young at 55. I mean, but like, that's a young age. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, and this is the, the, the great thing about the podcast, right? Like we share this journey and thank you for, for doing so in, in such an amazing way. And I've got so many questions here, but my point here is I think, you know, people often hear, and I just saw this the other day, they're like, well, pancreatic cancer is old person disease. Uh, no, it's not. Like when, and when people say old, they're talking about like people in their eighties, like, you know, someone right. who's 82 years old getting it, um, which, you know, to me, I, I've met a lot of 82 year olds that are very active, that are more active than a lot of 60 year olds. So let me just put that out there first. Like age is just a number, but I think in, in some parts of the scientific medical community, people still have this perception about pancreatic cancer being, hey, you know, you've lived 80 plus years, you know, now you've got this thing and, you know, that's who gets it. That is not true. And so we're defying those odds every day um, in every episode that we have because um, we don't interview many 80 year olds, let's put it that way. Um, right. So really fascinating piece that comes up here. And this is like my first big question. You had breast cancer here in 2015. You mentioned you didn't do chemo. So I'm guessing it was like, uh, not to get into too much of, uh, of your personal business here, but like a lumpectomy maybe, or 
No, you know all the stuff. No, it was lobular carcinoma in situ. So it was supposed to stay in situ yeah. is in place. I did have a lumpectomy and then I had to have two core needle biopsies. And then I took uh, tamoxifen. Tamoxifen, yep. An oral chemo. Um, I remained at high risk for it to become invasive, but touch wood, it never did. And so I was getting scans every six months. Um, and now that seems so minor. Um, I mean, I got nauseous with the tamoxifen. Um, I had to have an abdominal hysterectomy because I was one of the few that had a reaction to tamoxifen and caused endometriosis. So, I mean, <laughs> it was just like, I, it was, I was in and out of that hospital and, and I, I didn't know I had it. I was on assignment for the local paper and in, in um, cast at the statewide paper in Wyoming uh, doing a story on breast cancer, you know, like we do every October. And I was like, Oh gosh, how did I get this assignment? And I wanted to get a survivor that had a really good story. And I found an OBGYN. So here's a doctor that's specializing in obstetrics and gynecology her mother died of breast cancer when she was six, which led her to be an OBGYN. And then she found her own lump and waited six months before she got it checked. So I was like, I have the trifecta of survivors. This is awesome. And during the interview, she said, have you had a mammogram? And I didn't lie. I said, yes, but I didn't tell her it had been five years ago. So I went and got a mammogram and um never forget Kelsey was the tech. And she said, it was a Friday. Don't ever get anything done on a Friday. I can tell you anything. And she said, do we have your cell number? And huh. I knew then I, I had failed. And um, so the next week they literally said, yeah, it's a, uh, they, they did uh, a lumpectomy on my right breast. And then I had tamoxifen and they had to do two core needle biopsies and abdominal hysterectomy. So it was a, it was a really packed year. And in the meantime, I wrote about it in my weekly column for the statewide paper so people could kind of follow. And it was all, it was all about early detection. So it was kind of like uh, pixie dust is what it looked like on the screen. And mm -hmm. uh, they went and kind of lassoed it. And, and uh, so, again, it was important at the time. I took care of it at the time. Pancreatic cancer and, and the red uh, death that everybody can get with that. I've had pharmacists tell me in the hospital that 5-FU is the worst chemo that is out there. It's worse than anything. And I'm not trying to minimize anybody else's journey at all. It's just to put it in perspective that how, how tough 5-FU is. It's just brutal. And pancreatic cancer, I was told, is the only cancer, no matter the stage, they give you chemo before and after. You know, whereas sometimes with breast cancer, you just get it after, before. So, yeah. And for those that, I mean, I know we've talked about chemos before here, but, you know, 5FU, um, as you said, I mean, it's kind of, I use the term, like I dial it down, it's like the kitchen sink. So, um, you know, and just think about that, like it's, it's all encompassing. And when you go home with the pump, like to your point, like you go in, you get the, you know, you get the chemo in that one day, which can take sometimes as long as eight to 10 hours, um, you yeah. know, for some people, and then you go home with this pump and you know, okay. So people go, well, what's the big deal about that? But that pump is like buzzing the whole two days that you're on it. <laughs> yeah. It, it sounds like a slot machine, but without yeah. the pump, you're like, ching. 
Ka-ching. And, and yeah. I put a pillow over it. You can't shower with it. Like, yeah, it's not, it's not enjoyable whatsoever. You're tethered to it. Absolutely. And so the, the, the medical term is, um, and I'm going to butcher this, and this is probably why they call it 5-FU, but it's uh, fluoro-racial chemo. Fluoro-racial, F-L-U-O-R-O-U-R-A-C-I-L. Um, more commonly called as 5-FU. So, yeah. <laughs> the FU part is aptly named. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So- you get the breast cancer diagnosis, and so now you just mentioned something that's really kind of fascinating. You have the hysterectomy, which I want to talk about in a second. When you got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, did anyone do genetic testing? They did. So I had all that genetic testing done with the breast cancer, but this is the fascinating thing from 2015 to fast forward to 2022, when they did the genetic testing, they were able to, to test like 48 new markers. Correct. So when they did the breast cancer screening, I did not have the BRCA gene, the BRCA gene. I, I was negative for that. And the only thing that showed up was possibly colon cancer. So my I, I'm one of four and my older brother said, great, uh, you're going to save your tits, but lose your ass. So... <laughs> <laughs> so that is the joke. I hope that's okay to say. So, it's all good. It's all good. We love humor. I milk. I had milk duds. You know. I mean. You know. Brothers are awesome that way. So I. I got all the jokes, and uh, so I didn't have. You know, colon cancer never came up. I had the um, colonoscopy. It was all clear. So and pancreatic. When they did the genetic, I had no genetic disposition for any of this. So that's good for my children. It's good for my siblings, for my nieces and nephews, that it was all clear. I just, you know, I guess I pulled the short straw. So. So fascinating. I mean, we, you know, the genetics piece is a place uh, I'm sure in your research, which we'll talk about, you know, is where a lot of the science is going right with immunotherapy, genetics. And so it's just fascinating when you, when you, as a layman here, I'm, I, didn't stay at a Holiday Inn last night, and uh, I don't pretend to be a doctor, but I feel like I do know enough because I deal with this every day. But you hear someone who has breast cancer, who has a hysterectomy, you start to go down that route of genetics, right? And then you have a very uh, positive outcome here with pancreatic cancer. You know, um, I think, and this is not for your case, but as a whole, Mary, that we are just scratching the surface of genetics, right? And so it, it's fascinating. I think eventually maybe we'll come to, and maybe this is like sci-fi where, you know, everyone, you'll just go in, they'll just take a blood sample and it'll be, you know, a 300 panel instead of a 115 and they'll know everything. I was just, just having a conversation with someone who they, they had a child who had a missing chromosome, but then they had to do IVF and they were able to take that chromosome out or put the chromosome in that they're missing. Like it was so fascinating, like gen genetics oh, wow. and what they're able to do because this the, the, this uh, person, the, the, the first child was born, um, I think it was with an extra chromosome and it, and it causes, um, it caused a lot of uh, defects, um, not from a physical standpoint, but from a mental standpoint. 
And so they wanted to have more children. So they were able to go in and, and take that chromosome out. Um, and now they have a healthy second child, which is just so fascinating to me, right? So they could do that. We can do that from a science standpoint. And I think eventually what may happen is we'll get to that in the cancer space because we do know that there's a certain genes or certain families that have a high propensity of cancers. Um, some of them are identified like the BRCA gene, right? Which is probably the most popular and others we just don't know. Um, you know, and, and there's also this thought, you know, now there's been a lot of work with vaccines, um, you know, because of what we've just gone through over the last three years. And so potentially there, there might be something like a, a cold shot, like a, a flu shot, I should say, um, where, you know, for people that are at a high risk for certain cancers, uh, may just get a shot a year and it'll keep them, keep the cancer at bay potentially, you know? So it, it, it's interesting and it's fascinating where that science is going. Um, but, you know, again, back to your story, looking at your profile, I would say like, you know, someone listening who's probably, you know, in the space would go, oh, what about genetics? Someone was, at, when is Dino going to ask the question about genetics? So we got to oh, bring that up. It's a great question to ask and it is so important. And I shared, you know, you have to do the, the family history for people who have not had genetic testing. They ask a very thorough, very thorough uh, family history. So both my parents are deceased, but thankfully uh, I had aunts on either side that could fill in a lot of questions. Like, did anybody have breast cancer? Did anybody have pancreatic cancer? Uh, my grandfather had a brain tumor. Like, so, you know, it's just finding out these things I didn't know. And one of my aunts had breast cancer um, back when they just did a, a radical mastectomy. So, you know, so much has changed. And, um, and knowing that family piece is super important too, because, you know, but it's great for my children. And, but I still am like, that doesn't mean that it's a clear all. It's, you know, Correct. keep your health, you know, keep yourself in good well, health. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which 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 you know uh, for being sober for thirty seven years. So, question for you here that came up and just mentioned. So you had this uh, hysterectomy, which is like you played it off. <laughs> and the reason I know is like my mom went down this road when she was diagnosed, and that is a bitch of a surgery. It is. Oh God, and I. I had had three C-sections. So I, I was like, Hey, I, I, I really would rather just you cut me open again because I just know that I, but the, the, the crazy thing about that thought was like, Oh, I've had C-sections. This will be great. Well, after you have a C-section, you have this beautiful baby or in my case, twins yeah. the first time. And the, the baby helps, you know, everything go back into working order, right. You know, the nursing and everything. Yeah. When you have an abdominal hysterectomy, every time I walked, it felt like my, you know, my stomach was going to fall through. It, it was, I didn't have that. And the worst thing, I didn't have that same feeling. And then the worst thing is God bless the local hospital, but they had, they placed me on the maternity ward after the surgery. So I'm hearing all these women give birth and the sounds of new life when I felt like mine was slipping away. And I, you know, um, I was married to Ron at the time and I had had Cooper when I was 39 and we were thinking about, Hey, you know, he's young enough. Let's have another. And, um, you know, so that dream was gone and to be where everybody else is so vibrant and full of life, it was tough and it was a hard recovery. It was, 
nothing like the Whipple, but it was its own. It was very emotional. It was a very emotional recovery because um, I love kids and I love being a mom. And I, it doesn't mean I'm, I'm not still a mom. I just couldn't yeah. be a mom again. So that was kind of a bummer. Um, and, you know, I had half of a breast. I look like a Picasso painting, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, now I have the Whipple. I'm like, just the way that you have to turn your head is I, I look good. But I mean, oh, my gosh, I've got more scars on me than it's horrible. But um, Ron doesn't see him. And that's pretty cool. Oh, it's special. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I love how you also, so talking about the Whipple, and, and we've had people talk about this, but I just want to talk about that for a second, um, because you said that was, and so this is part of my question here was, because I know the hysterectomy is, is no joke. That's a, that's a mother of a surgery, and it's a long recovery, mentally and physically. Now you go into this Whipple, and that's a bitch of a surgery. So your experience, if we can, let's, let's talk a little bit about that because you, you said some pretty powerful stuff and I'm not here. I'm not going to pick on you here, Mary, but you know, if we look at the past you've given us, I mean, you, you were an alcoholic at 18, which is a pretty young age. So we don't need to go down that road, but like, that's a pretty powerful statement at, at such a young age to realize you probably was pretty bad to, to realize, Hey, you needed help. Right. And and you've been through through some stuff here. The pancreatitis is that kind of pain is insane. Like I we've had people on here like that is some of the worst gut wrenching pain. The hysterectomy, again, we just talked about that. So this whipple was worse than anything that you've ever had <laughs> physically or up. mentally. And you've been down this, you've been on the roller coaster a couple times here. Yes. Yes. And you know, the hysterectomy, um, the difference is with the hysterectomy, I could still eat. Right. So, um, you know, it was, it was tough to walk. I, you know, I would always hold my stomach. Like I thought something was going to fall out. Um, it was a long, slow, arduous process, but you could eat and you could, you, you could kind of comfort that because you could sleep on your side. There was a lot of different things. Um, with and pancreatitis again morphine didn't even touch the pain and and yes i have a high tolerance for drugs and alcohol yes i got sober young because i hit my bottom fast it didn't take long and i had a lot of you know uh real close chances at you know bad stuff happening um but when the morphine didn't even touch the pain and i was like i you know this isn't I, I wasn't getting any relief. And I remember Ron saying, just give it a few minutes. And I'm like, it's not kicking in. Um, so when they did the whipple, they put an IV in my back. And I remember the, they take you to recovery, gosh, for a couple hours, actually. And the surgery itself was almost nine hours. Mm-hmm. I obviously don't remember any of it. But when I came out, you know, I'm all stapled and I'm all, you know, patched up. And I'm in recovery. I'm feeling fine. And I'm hearing all these poor people that aren't doing fine. And then I finally get to my room and I have like an, uh, not even an hour with Ron and CC before visiting hours end. And they said, Dr. Arndt saw us. It looks good. You know, clear margins. I was like, yay. Well, when they left, all of a sudden my back started itching. Like I, 
I was really feeling the pain. I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And when the nurse would come in, I'd be like, do you have a back scratcher? I was literally asking for a back <laughs> scratcher. And I think they thought I was high. And finally, one of the nurses, the night nurse was so smart and said, would you lean forward for me? Which when you have a whipple, you're cut from stem to sternum, right? You know, so I'm like, oh, so she helps me lean forward. My whole back is hived because I literally oh. have an allergic reaction to the hydro, more, high, the hydrocodone, the oxy, everything that they were putting in my back. I was having an allergic reaction to, so it wasn't blocking the pain. And so they tried to, they thought at first it was just the, the back IV. So they tried to put it back in, which is painful as hell. And, um, finally they realized, oh, she's having an allergic reaction. So to the point about being a recovering alcoholic, what a lot of people don't realize is the American medical association, and this is not a podcast for alcoholism, but it's to this point, it's, it's defined as an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. My body physically reacts differently to drugs and alcohol than someone else. So I couldn't have, I hate to say the good drugs, but I couldn't have the good drugs because I was breaking out in hives. So they had to get really, really creative. And I really didn't have a block. So it was supposed to block. I didn't have a block. So that's why I was praying to die. Cause I had about seven days of the most excruciating numbing pain of my, I, well, I wish it was numbing. It wasn't, it was the most excruciating pain that was constant and it wouldn't let up. And I thought, get rid of Guantanamo Bay, just give somebody either five FU or a Whipple and you'll get whatever answers you want because it is so horrible, you know? So that's why I say it was worse because with the other things, one, you could eat two, you, you know, the pain was bad, but it wasn't as this was, I, I they couldn't give me anything other than I think like really uh, extra strength, like ibuprofen for the swelling. I mean, I literally was on nothing because I was allergic to everything. So it's in my chart now. And it makes recovering from a surgery super hard because if you can't sleep, your body can't heal. And I was having a really hard time sleeping because I was in such pain. I think I would literally just black out from the pain. I think the only time I slept was when I was like, I'm done. You know, like it was that bad. So that is why I, you know, it's important that I'm open with my medical care team that I'm a recovering alcoholic because I, I am bodily different from other patients. I do have a physical reaction to drugs and alcohol. So that, you know, and then when I had pneumonitis, uh, I did take cough syrup and they said, this has like something in it. And at that point I was like, I'm not asking for the bottle. I'm just asking to be able to breathe. And so, I, you know, like, I, you know, my motives were clean. I'm like, I don't care what you give me at this point. You know, put, you know, vodka in the dang, you know, inhaler as long as I can breathe. But I, you know, I was able to maintain my sobriety because I um, told my care team who I am and what my makeup is, and they were able to treat me accordingly. But uh, yeah, Whipple hands down the worst. Uh, and pneumonitis would be a close second because when you can't breathe, it, it's a game changer. It just changes the whole everything. It's so powerful. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I think again, we on this podcast have talked about complications, but we've never gone in, in depth into it. And, uh, I just appreciate you. I know it's not an easy time on this note. 
what do you think was the turning point in that? You know, I know you mentioned the conversation with your daughter, um, but was that the the turning that, point for this? You know what? That's awesome. Um, I didn't even remember saying it to her until I saw it later on her documentary, and I was kind of horrified. I think the turning point was when they had to uh, put the pick line in. I called it the feedback, but it's a pick line. This but a you pick did mention line. feedback. I felt like, you know, it's like my name is Mary. My dad used to call me Mary, you know, so I felt like a horse, you know, I was like, go ahead. So they put in the pick line under my arm and that was awful. And I think that day when I shut all the curtains, I'd always had the windows open. I was up on a high, you know, I could see out of Colorado, gorgeous Rocky Mountains. When I shut the window, the curtains and I turned off all the lights and I was like, that's it. Um, I just, I just remember getting, I don't know how I got on my knees, but I got on my knees and I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm done. And then I remember just something inside me. And I know it was my higher power saying, open the damn windows. And I opened the things and it's like my attitude turned. I I was like, Nope, I'm not going to, this isn't going to, I have, I have overcome so many things so many things in my short life that this is not going to get me. And, um, CC took me to the chapel. And, um, in her documentary, she said at that time, I didn't believe in God, but my mom did. And, um, my kids have seen me go through two and um, I had all my kids in sobriety, you know, so they've never seen me drunk, but that doesn't mean they haven't seen me lose hope. And um, when I knelt and then CC goes, let's go to the chapel. And I was on a walker and barely able to move. Something got me up that, I mean, I joke and said, I was like Mrs. Sawigan in the Carol Burnett show, if you've ever seen that, you know, I was like hobbling along like Mrs. Wiggins and uh, went down to that chapel and um, God, the sunlight was coming in on the stained glass and it was so beautiful. And I thought there is so much more to life than this. And God has already caught it early. I didn't spread to the lymph nodes or the margins. Like what part of this can't you get that he's saving you? What part of this makes you so convinced that you aren't deserving of? It's because I feel so guilty. Um, Other people haven't had that kind of success and um, I don't know why I was scared. Um, Only that I was. And I try to give back as much as I can because I was spared. And, um, you know, so that was that turning point. I had the room was so dark and so black and I was letting in all the negative and it just, that wasn't going to work. So that was it, you know, and, um, then I just kind of, I know it's a cliche, but I felt like I rose like the Phoenix, you know, from the ashes, beauty from ashes. I was just all about it. I was like, hell, shave my head. Let's go. 
And, uh, and it, you know, it was a, it was a long recovery back, but I'm still here, you know, like July 12th, I celebrated 37 years sober, you know, like I'm still here. I got to go up to the beach. Um, granted we're stranded now, but <laughs> <laughs> that's the beach in the background. That's the picture I took one night. You know, I got to walk on the beach and just, and Ron took a picture. I didn't even know. I was just, my feet were in the sand. The ocean was coming up on me and I just prayed. I just thanked God that I, that I was still here. You know, you just, there's so many things we can get so upset about. And I, I am, I pray, I fall prey to them too. The stupid burnt toast and broken shoelaces, but there's so much more than the burnt toast and broken shoelaces, you know, and just having that moment in the sand to thank God was everything, you know, just everything. So um, that was the turning point. And it continues. Like when I start to, want to bellyache about something i'm like no you know and not to diminish what's going on in a day-to-day thing but i try to get a bigger picture and look at like wow <laughs> look at where you were a year ago you know look at you were ringing the bell a year ago and uh and things were just starting because i have ct scans every three months and that's that causes a lot of anxiety you know and um but they've all been clear you know, even when they found something and they were convinced that it'd come back and it only been three months, I said, no, I know what it feels like. It's not this. And, and it wasn't, it was scar tissue, but it's hard to stay grounded when people that treat pancreatic cancer sometimes only want to tell you the bad news because there's so much hope out there. There's so much... And I got to tell you, Project Purple sent me a blanket. Like, I was showered. I was showered. And I, I, purple was never my color, but now it is. Like, I, you know, like I am telling you, my birthstone happens to be purple because I'm a February baby. I used to hate it. Now I'm like, all right, let's bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so that was the turning point. And, it, and it's, a, it's a continual turning point to just keep my focus on the gratitude. Oh, that, that was so powerful. And, uh, thank you for sharing that with us. That was pretty special for me and, and hopefully our audience can feel. And, and for those that have listened to episodes, um, you know, I've been doing this a long time, six and a half years of interviewing guests. And there's moments on episodes when you know that, uh, it's like those special moments. And that was one of those special moments, Mary. So thank you for being honest and open and for sharing that with our audience. Cause I think, uh, a lot of people need to hear that. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, a couple questions left for you here, and then we're going to give, uh, you a chance, uh, to give where our audience can connect with you. You're a pretty accomplished writer. And I know we haven't talked about that. Uh, you're on Amazon. You got a whole series of books. You even got like a, you can buy like your box set of books. Um, <laughs> so how has that been, you know, through all this, like that, that I assume that's your day job. 
You know what? I wish it was. And, and I, and from your lips to God's ears, that's what I want. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in education and I teach fiction writing and I also work for the state of Wyoming in education. Um, so, um, but the writing came about my undergrad is in journalism. My master's is in education. The writing came about because I always, my dad was a Pulitzer prize winning writer and it's kind of like being Joe Montana's, you know, son, you know, like he's yeah. the, the greatest quarterback of all time in my perspective. Although my husband would say it's, it's uh, the former Patriot guy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I took classes at a junior college to learn how to um, write fiction and started back from the beginning. And my first book never got published and it shouldn't, but it was the, I learned how to do from beginning to middle end. And one of my books is with Simon and Schuster and that's a man for all seasons. And it's about meeting Ron. Um, cause I met him on Christmas, but I, I make it Thanksgiving and then it ends on Christmas, but, um, it's a cute little romantic novella and it was really fun. And I asked him what he wanted his name to be. And he picked a soccer, uh, the guy's name is Joe. I, I want to say, I can't remember the name of Rigetti or some special famous soccer guy with the last name. But anyway, so it just started from there. And I've been with big presses and small presses. And when I went through breast cancer, I wrote six books in 18 months on my phone because with an abdominal hysterectomy, I could not hold a laptop. So those are the box sets. They were all resort romances because I needed to be in the beach on my mind, in my mind. And I used to work at the Four Seasons, so I called it the Five Leaves. I mean, I really didn't get very creative. <laughs> um, romantic comedies, and they're all based in places I love. Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, the Oregon Coast, uh, Quinta Head, the, the Lighthouse. Um so those are my resort romances and I did them on my phone. So when my student writers are like, Oh, I don't have the time to write. I'm like, if you have a phone, you can, you can write. write. And I did it in the notes section. So during pancreatic cancer, I did a detour and I was writing a political thriller and I was still meeting with a writing group um, of a very small writing group every Saturday, no matter how I looked or felt, I would have a chapter. And I did that. That. And now I just need to finish it, but it's almost like I lost the steam. I don't know. I just haven't finished it, but, um, it's really good. And I just, I don't know. I just didn't, I haven't finished it, but, um, writing gets me through because it puts my mind somewhere else. So it's always my escape. And, um, so I have books under Mary Billiter. I wrote my son, one of my twins, got diagnosed with affective schizophrenic disorder, uh, which is usually what you think is a death sentence. He's so highly functional, got his college degree. He's in the forestry. We wrote a psychological thriller about what happens if uh, a mind is left divided. And so it was told from the mom and the kid's point of view. And we fictionalized it. And it's probably the best work I've ever done. And my publisher said, let's rebrand you and make you M Billiter because men won't read a female author. Damn yeah. men. So, you know, I've taken some of the worst things and turned them into some of the best things. So breast cancer was, I needed comedy and romance with my son's diagnosis. I needed to understand. So we wrote it together. And then with pancreatic cancer, I needed 
I was at the capital city of Wyoming. I could see the capital during infusions and I kept seeing that. I was like, okay, what would happen if this happened? So uh, it has lobbyists and politicians and all the things that, you know, I knew nothing about, but I learned and it got my head out of the infusion center. So I would do it on my phone. So that whole book is written on my phone and I would just email myself chapters. Fascinating. <laughs> or maddening. I don't know. <laughs> no. And, and this is what's so fascinating. So, uh, you know, we've been talking here almost an hour. Sorry. <laughs> and, you know, I've been taking notes and you just said something that's, that's very interesting. Escape. The writing was this escape and though, but the coping and you mentioned your son and how you deal with things. Have you ever, and in hindsight's always twenty twenty. and I've said this before, sometimes this happens often and sometimes it doesn't. Like I kind of have this picture here and I look at like these life events that you've been talked about, that you talked about and these experiences. I'm not saying that anything happens for a reason or someone gets cancer for a reason, but the experiences that you experience in your life prepare you if you're a, a Catholic, I was born Roman Catholic, so we know the Catholic guilt. You know, I could hear some of that Catholic guilt in there and in bits and pieces. You know, I, I truly believe, you know, faith um, is very powerful, but I feel that God does give us sometimes what we can handle. Right. And things do sometimes happen for a reason. Um, Sometimes we don't have the answer and sometimes we never will have the answer, right? But sometimes things do happen and, and we go down these weird paths or these these challenges that we experience that at the time might be monumental. But now look back or fast forward 20, 30 years, we go through similar experiences and because of what we experienced in the past we're able to handle or able to manage and do that so it, it's fascinating to me mary here to just hear you speak and i know you mentioned you lost your dad you know you so you've gone through some trauma um some challenging times but you've gotten through all this <laughs> yes, it's, I'm still standing. You know, it's like a Mighty Python movie. I'm not dead yet. You know, like I, I don't know. You know, I I've often joked and said I was a swimmer my whole life, and I have broad shoulders. But sometimes I think God thinks they're too broad. But <laughs> you know, and yet, um, I can honestly say, even in the worst pain. I just, I would pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and, and, and I would get the relief. And even if it was just for a moment, even if it was blacking out, I don't know, I would get the relief I needed because maybe I'd cry myself to sleep. I don't know, but the relief would come and it would get me to the next moment. So all of those, you know, all of those together. And then looking back and saying, well, you wrote six books when you had, you know, <laughs> breast cancer, you're only doing one with this, but you know, romantic comedies are fun and light and easy. And, and, um, so it was, it was just where I needed to go in my mind. And I, I'm very goal oriented. I needed to have a goal. I needed to have goals while I was going through this. And it wasn't just getting through the chemo. That is a big part of it, but I needed something outside of that. I couldn't have chemo take away everything. So 
that's where I set like dance with my son at his wedding, mm-hmm. you know, write this book, have a chapter each week, even in the hospital, even with the Whipple, I was, I wrote a chapter, which was nothing short of miraculous. I just was not going to let my mom was Irish and I definitely was not, you know, my Irish got up and I was not going to let it don't tell me what I can't do. So I was going to, I was going to do whatever I had to do to get through it, you know, and then, and, and then share it and then give it away and then help and then do whatever I can for anybody else suffering. Sometimes it's just a hug. A lot of times it's just a hug and having somebody say, you know, I'm here and I'm so sorry. And it's going to be okay. Even if you don't know, it's going to be okay. Sometimes you just need to hear that. So, so my next question here, and you, and you just teed this up perfectly, <laughs> someone listening to this podcast that is where you were back when you originally got that diagnosis, what advice would you give them? And I, you just gave a great tidbit, but I'm sure there's plenty of other things. You know, um, don't, I, everybody else don't get on the internet. Oh God, don't <laughs> get on the internet. You know, what I love about Project Purple, and and I mean this, is that it's always a focus on the positive. You know, it's not like so-and-so, you know, died of this. You know, okay, yeah, we know that. We know all the famous people that have died of this. It's always like, hey, did you know that early detection saves lives? Or, hey, did you know this? Or, hey, listen to this person's story. It's always a positive. And you can find the negative as much as you can find the positive. And I had to, somebody said, Oh, get on the Whipple warrior Facebook group. I had to get off that because I was getting sucked into some negative experiences. And there are those out there. I'm not, I'm again, not trying to diminish their experience. I needed to go where the light was literally when I opened those shades, I needed to let the light in because the darkness was getting so dark. And that was with everything. And then I just, you know, one thing that really helped me and it's going to sound weird, but I, my sister gave me a subscription to one of those meditation apps and I would, and I brought in headphones, not earbuds, headphones into the hospital so I could drown out everything else and just listen. And I listened to Christian podcasts. I listened to, you know, waves. I listened to anything to not focus on the constant beeping. And I think it's a mindset. And I had a priest because I had last rites every single time. And he'd say, it's all about your attitude. And I was like, you're right. You know, that's the only thing I could control. I could not control how my body was going to react to 5-FU or Gembraxine or any of that good stuff, I could control my attitude. So I dressed up for every single chemo treatment. I know that's stupid, but I was like, I'm going to look good. Even bald, I'm going to look good. So, And for me, that was for me. I needed to look in the mirror and go, oh, there I am. You know, I had no eyebrows, (laughs) no eyelashes. And let me tell you, when you're trying to tell your kid to empty the trash and your voice isn't doing it. And you can't raise your eyebrows. It's a game changer. You know, like take out the trash and he'd laugh at me. Cause I look like, I don't know. Uh, so, you know, but I had to find the humor. Uh, I had to go to where the light is, find the humor and, and tune out all the negativity, especially my own voice. That was like, this is too much. You can't do it. And I was like, Nope, Nope. I just had to tune that out. So it's a tall order. And it can't happen overnight. It's literally one moment at a time. It's just one 
moment at a time. So powerful. Uh, my last question here, and then we're going to share where our audience could connect. And uh, I love your page, by the way. I was looking at it before. There's some really cool content on there. I, lo I love uh, some of the things you got, which we'll talk about here in a second. But this is always our last question. There's no right or wrong. It's a loaded question. Um, I always kind of preface it that way. Given your experience, what you've gone through, what's your definition of pancreatic cancer? How do you define it? Wow. The first thing I thought of is it can't define me. And, and, and that's the thing it, it's on your chart. I, I've had Dr. El Terabelli retired. I was one of his last patients and he, I get a visiting doctor locally and he'll be always like, Oh, you're so lucky. Yes, I am. Pancreatic cancer was that diagnosis just like my son's was not going to define me. He didn't let effective schizophrenic define him. I didn't let pancreatic cancer define me. I am a proud supporter of it. I wear the purple. I'm all about it. But it was not going to be Mary Billiter, pancreatic cancer. It wasn't going to be that. That was not going to be my byline. It, that, it, I'm a victor. I'm not a victim. I'm a victor. I'm, it's that mindset, right? It's getting in that mindset. So, and again, I know what I'm saying sounds is going to be hard for someone, anybody, and, and some days you're going to fall, you're going to fall to the victim side. I get it. Um, it's not staying in there long, too long because then it gets comfortable. And then, then the cancer wins. No, just no. So, yeah. So I guess I would say that pancreatic cancer, I'm a victor. I'm not a victim. And so I love it. it didn't I love it. It's so powerful. Um, and you, you said so many golden things there. Um, I hope our audience is listening. Last piece here. Uh, best place for someone to connect. I mentioned Instagram. I, I would recommend going to your Instagram page because I've actually, as I said, I was looking before. And let me say this. I know you've mentioned this many times. You look amazing. I saw your son. You have a, a link to your son's. Uh -huh. You did an article from your son's wedding and you had really short hair and you looked amazing. Whoa. So I know you said, you know, hair. I know we, we have in, you know, in this society, I should say, we have this whole thing with vanity, right? Women have to look a certain way. Guys have to look a certain way. But what matters is people, right? And who they are inside. And speaking to you for the hour and seven minutes as we've been recording here, as I look at the clock, uh, you just have this amazing personality. And um, if we were in person, I'm a hugger. We would hug. Uh, but you're absolutely beautiful without hair, with hair, same person, you know? And so, uh, but you do look amazing on the wedding day. Thanks. Really, really pretty. Um, so I know you've mentioned a couple times about not having hair and how that probably made you feel. Um, but for someone who's a complete stranger looking at your page, I'm not trying to hit on you, but I'm just telling oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> that you look amazing. So let me just put that out there. But where's the best place for our audience to connect with you? I do Instagram and I think my handle is at Mary Billiter. I'm not sure yes. this is horrible. Um in my website, uh marybilliter.com, just my whole name. There you can read about my, my son's wedding and see my books. And of course, you can always go on Amazon and Mary Billiter or M Billiter. You can find my books there and um 
You know, I but you can always I have had people instant message me on Instagram and I will respond. I don't check that often. I don't know. And then my son is like, Mom, you have a message and I will get back and somebody's sister was going through the whipple. I will get back to you. It might not be right away, but I will. And then I'll give you my email. It's my whole name, Mary Billiter and that's B is so Mary M A R Y and then Billiter B is in boy I L L I T is in Tom E R at and it's just the letter Y mail.com. Yahoo ran out and so I got a Y. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, you know, again, I check my spam folder because things go in there, but hundred percent, please. I if I can offer anything, please reach out and I will I will give what I can. Mary, thank you for allowing us to share your journey. It's been an honor for me to uh, talk to you here about your journey and it's so inspirational. I hope our audience is listening and really taking to heart your journey and all the, the wonderful things you have to say about how you've beat pancreatic cancer. Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you, Dino, so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you liked today's episode, please share this episode and follow the Project Purple Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That is a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, please be safe.